we had a special weekend planned this weekend. God had other plans. And once it became apparent that he was not changing his plans, <laughs> we had to adjust and change ours. We were scheduled to have David ring with us. He was going to speak to our men yesterday at breakfast. We had a great number of men signed up. And uh, it was Thursday night. He contacted me and said, I've been watching the weather where you're at. I don't know if this is good. I said, trust me, it's not good. Um, <laughs> but uh, he said, I'm normally booked solid for months in advance, but I happen to have a date at the end of March. Do you think we should reschedule? And I discussed it with the elders and staff, and we decided, well, that's probably the best. There's no guarantee it won't snow at the end of March. It may snow on Easter here. I don't know. Anyway, but he'll be here with us for a men's breakfast on that Sunday, on that Saturday, and then that Sunday, the 26th, he'll be with us in our morning service. Well, because of that, I wasn't prepared to preach this morning, and uh, that decision was made uh, late of, uh, on Thursday night. So what, uh, we're in a series in First John, and uh, rather than continue that this morning, because I didn't really have enough time to do it justice, I reached, I found my archives and went way, way back. A long time ago, I did a series, and I pulled something out that I've redone. If I ever redo a sermon, it's never like it was the first time. I always change it, and so that's what I've done. We'll see what happens. Um, the series was the Beatitudes. In the Gospel of Matthew, at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus mentions eight different statements that are together called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude means blessed or blessed. And blessedness means happiness. Beatitude means blessed, and blessedness means happiness. And so this section from the Sermon on the Mount is discussing the essence of happiness. This morning we're addressing just the third beatitude, and that beatitude is blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, or restated as happy are those that don't overreact. Happy are those, blessed are those that don't overreact. I might add this message is primarily aimed at me because these are things I need to be reminded of. Notice Matthew 5 and verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Some time ago, J. Upton Dixon founded an organization, an actual organization, of submissive people called doormats. Doormats. Doormats is an acronym. And this acronym doormats means dependent organization of really meek and timid souls, if there are no objections. Uh, the doormat motto is an adaptation from this third beatitude, and its twisted translation reads, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everyone. <laughs> Mr. Dixon also teaches what he calls cower power. Cower meaning to crouch down to be afraid of, to, to tremble before someone. But coward power is a misnomer because there is no power in being afraid in a terrified sense. 
The problem is some people assume that the ridiculous ideas behind doormats and this cower power actually represents the meekness that is implied and mentioned in this particular beatitude. That this meekness implies a sense of weakness. And that's, that's the idea some people have, that meekness means weakness. That isn't the case. The exact opposite is true. It is interesting that the word meek is derived from the root word in the Greek language, the root word praus. And praus means mild, soft, and gentle. Mild, soft, and gentle. Some Bibles translate this beatitude as blessed are the gentle. And because of that, someone has defined meekness as strong enough to be gentle. And someone else said that meekness is strength under control. And that's the definition we're going to use throughout this message. Notice, meekness is strength under control. The original word translated as meekness was used in ancient non-biblical literature to refer to the domestication of animals. That word meant to gain control of or to harness an animal's strength and power for our use. That concept is illustrated through someone breaking a wild horse uh, so that then this horse is rideable. Uh, this meekness was also used to mean the taming of a lion, not the caging of a lion as per a zoo, but the actual taming of a lion because meekness was the same as domestication, strength under control. From that original usage, the word meekness has been extended to include people. Meekness is not cowardice. Meekness is not emotional softness. Meekness is not an, absent of moral, an absence of moral conviction and backbone. And it is more than mere human niceness. Meekness is someone's strength of character that is under control. Let me interject a footnote. Please notice that Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth. The earth mentioned here is probably a reference to the future prophetical messianic period on this earth called the millennium. Remember, Jesus is scheduled to return to the earth after the tribulation period, 84 months of hell on earth. And he returns as the promised Messiah, and he's going to set up his messianic millennial kingdom. And the point is that the meek are going to be participants in that kingdom because the meek are related to the king who is going to rule the future kingdom on this earth. Christians are said to be the meek that are assigned to reign on earth beside Jesus in his messianic kingdom. And Jesus himself was the incarnation of meekness. Notice 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself... And pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Jesus, remember, was both God and man. And as God, Jesus had infinite strength available to him. But because he manifested meekness, he maintained that incredible strength under control. And the ultimate example of that was the statement he made just before his crucifixion in Matthew 26 
verse 53. Jesus said, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Some people misunderstand. Jesus wasn't forced to die. He voluntarily died. Jesus didn't have to be crucified. He could have had a legion of angels rescue him. The word legion was a military designation that referred to 6,000 troops. And Jesus said he had 12 legions of angels available to him. So do the math. 6,000 angels in a legion times 12 legions equals 12,000, or pardon me, 72,000 angels. So he had 72,000 angels available to him. Remember that angels have superhuman strength. We know that because in 2 Kings 19, Kings 19, verse 35, just one angel in one night, acting unassisted, slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian troops. So angels possess enormous superhuman strength. Jesus made the statement that he had 72,000 of these angels at his disposal to rescue him from being crucified. And someone said, what could 72,000 angels do? Answer, anything they want to. <laughs> Jesus had unlimited strength, but he refrained from using that strength and instead submitted to the sovereign agenda of his Father and bled out his life on a cross so that we might have forgiveness. Now, please don't miss this. If meekness is strength under control then strength out of control is the same as an overreaction. Strength out of control, the antithesis of meekness, is the same as an overreaction. And so in essence, Jesus said that blessedness and happiness belongs to that person that doesn't overreact. Now, I, um, I'm probably the only person in this room that's ever overreacted, so... It's, it's okay. This is for me. You can just kind of, you know, just listen and smile and you'll be fine. Um, but in case there's a slight possibility that you're susceptible to overreaction, you might want to pay close attention. Let's discuss five techniques to being meek and not overreacting. Five techniques to being meek and not overreacting. One is, if someone misserves us, then we are to be understanding but not demanding. If someone misserves us, we are to be understanding, but not demanding. Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. How we treat other people is not to be determined by how we expect them to treat us, how we treat other people is not to be determined by how we think they should treat us, but how we treat other people should be determined by how we want them to treat us, and how we want them to treat us is how we are to treat them. That uh, renowned theologian, Dr. Phil, said that we train people to treat us. We literally train others how to treat us. 
that is consistent with Jesus' statement from Matthew's gospel. And we train people how to treat us by treating them how we want to be treated ourselves. Different people serve us. We've all eaten at restaurants. There are men and women, servers that serve us. There are receptionists, bank tellers, fast food operators, salespersons, uh, cashier clerks at checkout counters, and on and on and on. And chances are, at some point, someone is going to misserve us. Uh, someone's going to bring us something we didn't order. Uh, someone's going to bring us something we ordered, but it wasn't prepared as it should have been. <clears throat> at some point, someone's going to misserve us. It, it could be intentional probably more often than not unintentional, if that happens, that we should be understanding and not demanding of them. I've been in a group of pastors at dinner, and this is rare because I don't like to hang around pastors, I'm sorry. Um, I, I just don't. Only, only some that I know and respect. Um, we were at a very nice restaurant, uh, and, and I, I was totally embarrassed at the rudeness of another pastor toward the men and women that served us. I was so embarrassed, I, I wanted to crawl under the table. I, I couldn't believe that was happening. He wasn't understanding, he was demanding. Before T-Mobile bought Sprint, we had Sprint and now we have T-Mobile, not our choice, and I have terrible service. Um, I remember calling customer service at Sprint uh, to ask some questions about my cell phone plan. And as per expected, someone spoke to me from India. And because English was not his primary language, we had a difficult time communicating. And it was frustrating. I was so tempted to say, Sir, would you please listen to me? I'm going to repeat this in the English language one more time and I'm going to say it very very slowly so please listen carefully I was tempted to do that but that would be demeaning that would be demanding and that's not being understanding it's not being Christ-like so I resisted the urge to do that and I'm grateful I did because I would have I would have regretted it had I I understand from residents in other countries that Tourists from the U.S. are sometimes perceived as being rude, discourteous, and demanding. And that's not the reputation someone ought to have. Remember, we need to be respectful to all people. One of our friends from California, who now resides in East Tennessee, all of my friends are moving from California, and um, because that's what intelligent people do, um, and one of our former church elders um, retired from the Martinez Police Department. Martinez is a city, a small city in the Bay Area. Um, some of you probably have visited there. Uh, John Muir, the famous naturalist, conservationist, his home is there. Probably, though, it's best known for a gentleman that played baseball. Joe DiMaggio was from Martinez. And a close friend of of his told me that as a policeman, after this friend arrested different suspects 
and brought them to be incarcerated at the county jail, once he had them booked, the alleged criminal would actually turn to him and thank him. Thank him. Because he even treated suspected felons with respect. Um, strength under control means if someone misserves us, then we strive to be understanding and not demanding. Second, if someone disappoints us, then be gentle, but not judgmental. If someone disappoints us, then be gentle, but not judgmental. I might add a footnote here. Uh, full transparency. These points are more creative than I probably am capable of. So I, I'm guessing I probably stole them from someone. I don't know who. I'd be happy to give them credit for the language, but I, I don't even know where I found them or I could have made them up. I don't know. Um, but the rest of it's mine. Uh, Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, trespasses are sins. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Meaning, restore the sinning brother or sister. Restore means to mend. Um, it, had, it has the idea of repairing something that has been broken and damaged. And so we are to restore, we are to repair that broken person that has sinned. And we are to do that how? Notice, in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Let me reread that. We are to restore a sinning brother or sister. We are to help repair them, put their life back together. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Why? Considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. Some time ago, uh, during our time in California, I received a six-page, six-page email from someone in our congregation. Uh, he, he felt that he should do this. He was in the process of, of repentance that ultimately ended up to be thorough and permanent um, he literally regurgitated the full contents of his soul. I've never received an email like this. He confessed to personal incident after incident of sexual indiscretion. And he was a married man, had children. He, he, he even mentioned how he had solicited escort services. And I admit that at first I caught myself reading this and going, how could he do this? How could he do this? This is, this is terrible. He professes to be a Christian, and he's been doing all this immoral stuff. And then it hit me that theoretically, this could have been me. This email could have been mine. I am not above sin. I am not above committing any sin. We need to consider ourselves because we could be tempted to do the same sinful thing that someone else has done. And if we consider ourselves, then we are going to be more apt to be gentle toward that sinning person because that's how we would want others to treat us if we also fell into some sin. So if we're disappointed, be gentle toward that person not judgmental. Understand, there is a difference between judging someone and being judgmental. 
There's a difference between judging someone, forming an evaluation in our mind about what something, something someone has done, and being judgmental. In contradiction to secular societal opinion that argues it isn't right to ever judge, um, it is permissible to judge someone if that judgment is a righteous and uh, appropriate judgment. Uh, it happens all the time. All of us make these judgment evaluations. That's the reason a policeman has the right to ticket me if I'm doing 80 in a 55. He can make a judgment about my driving based on his radar reading and then act according to that judgment. And that's a legitimate judgment on his part. That was a totally hypothetical example. Never done that, okay? But being judgmental is a different matter. Being judgmental is a self-righteous, condemning attitude that acts as a judge, passing sentence on others, seeing only the best in itself and the worst in everyone else. That's judgmentalism. And this judgmentalism is the one thing that Jesus probably preached against the most. And his strongest rebuttal against that sin of judgmentalism is found in Matthew chapter 23. He just nailed those hypocritical, judgmental Pharisees to the wall. Read that text somewhat, sometime. It's, it's hardcore. Most of us probably don't think of ourselves as being judgmental. But that arrogant attitude is more subtle than most people realize. Some examples. If someone takes a long time to do something, then he's just slow. If it takes me a long time to do something, then I'm just being thorough. If someone else doesn't do something he should do, then he's lazy. If I don't do something I should be doing, then it's because... I'm overwhelmed. I have so much to do. If someone else does something without being told, then he's overstepping his bounds. If I do the same thing, then that's initiative on my part. If someone else pleases the boss, then he's just kissing up to him. If I please the boss, then I'm just doing my job. If someone else gets ahead, then he's getting all the breaks and someone's playing favoritism. If I manage to get ahead, then that's just the result of my hard work. No, we've all been guilty of this sin. We need to be careful. If someone disappoints us, then we are not to feel an internal secret sense of pious, sanctimonious satisfaction and make such judgmental statements as, I would never have been that dumb to do that. Instead, we are to be gentle toward that person and not judgmental. Because under certain conditions, we are not above doing the same thing ourselves. Number three, if someone disagrees with us, then be tender but not surrender. If someone disagrees with us, if there's a disagreement between us and someone else, then be tender, meaning tender toward that person, but not surrender. Disagreements happen. And there are three things we can do if someone has a serious disagreement with us. Three things. Don't miss them. One, we can retreat in fear. We can pull back because we're afraid. 
This retreating in fear is the same as being a passive doormat and just giving in to the other person. But if there's a disagreement between us, we don't have to necessarily surrender our position. If there's a disagreement, we don't have to necessarily just cave in and change our position. The reason is because sometimes, probably more often than not, disagreements are about things that aren't wrong, but just different. Remember this phrase, not wrong, just different. Not wrong, just different. These are, in essence, non-sin issues. An example, some people know, I don't eat guacamole. Um, I've been told I'm strange, weird, because I don't eat guacamole. I don't. I don't even like to look at it. I don't like anything about it. And uh, people go, I can't believe you don't. Yeah, well, there are some of us. And uh, why don't I like guacamole? Because I don't like avocados. People don't know this, but did you know that the forbidden fruit in the garden was not an apple? It was an avocado. (laughs) It's true. It's in the Hebrew. You should look it up. And by the way, an avocado is a fruit, not a vegetable. I don't like avocados. I don't want them near me. I don't like guacamole. Now, am I wrong because I don't like uh, that fruit and that substance, that guacamole? Am I wrong? No, just different. Okay, real, real different. I get it, but I'm different. Are you wrong because you like avocados and you love guacamole? No, no, no one's wrong. We're just different. We're just different. Our house is a uh, guacamole-free zone, I might add. (laughs) Never had guacamole in our house. It's not permitted. Uh, But if there's a disagreement between us, we don't have to necessarily, you know, change our position if we feel strongly about something. But we should be considerate enough to validate the other person's position, you know, and see it from their perspective. And if there's no solution to that disagreement, uh, that then that is acceptable to both parties, then we should just agree to disagree agreeably. And we can do that on non-essential matters. But to be afraid and just automatically capitulate to the other person's position, even if we feel strongly about our position, to just cave into them, no, that's not the biblical approach to solving a disagreement. We don't have to retreat because we're afraid. Second, we can attack in anger. We can attack in anger. Some people blow up at the person that disagrees with them. To them, to some people, disagreement is a win-lose situation. And these people are determined to win. Determined to win. General George S. Patton made this statement. Never fight a battle where winning doesn't make a difference. Let me repeat that. That is incredible advice. Never fight a battle where winning doesn't make any difference. I have been so guilty of that. Most of us have fought battles and won battles about stuff that doesn't matter. 
In the big scheme of things, it's nothing. It's minuscule. But we argue and we fight and we push back about things that are just inconsequential. I'm serious. It happens in marriages. Marriages have to address the question, which way does the bathroom toilet paper roll go on the dispenser? Is it, does it go over or does it go under? This is a contentious question. This can cause marital conflict. Seriously. How many of you believe it goes over? How many of you believe it goes under? Ooh, wow. Alrighty. Well, for those under people, we need to be gentle, not judgmental. We need to be, you know, careful. I once counseled a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law who were having a conflict and one of the situations that they were fighting about had a serious disagreement about was that question. Because she didn't think it was right for her daughter-in-law to put the toilet paper on the dispenser the way it did because her son had always been used to the way she was doing it. People, that is not a hill to die on. It's just not. (laughs) I might add a footnote. In a technical sense, it is impossible to win an argument. It is impossible to win an argument. A public debate where there are rules and a moderator and in some cases actual judges is something different altogether. But a personal argument um, with someone we have a disagreement with, really it's impossible to win that argument because if we lose an argument, we lose it. And if we win an argument, then we still lose it. Let me explain. Suppose there's a disagreement and we get into it and it's heated and we shoot someone's arguments completely full of holes, just blast them. And we annihilate his position. And we just tear it apart into pieces. Now that might make us feel good about ourselves because we came out on top. But our opponent feels defeated and inferior and embarrassed. And remember this. We've all heard this. In most cases, a man convinced against his will is of the same position and opinion still. So in a technical sense... No one won. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There are two phrases in this verse. And these phrases describe our responses to disagreement. It is important to remember that we are not responsible for someone else's actions toward us, but we are responsible for our reaction to that person's actions. God holds us responsible for our actions and our reactions. We are responsible for our reaction to someone else's actions, even if those actions on his part are horrific. Per the first half of this verse, the first response to a disagreement is a soft answer. A soft answer turns away wrath, and that is true. That implies a reaction that is soft in terms of volume. It is soft in contrast to loud. The problem is, for me, my initial response in a disagreement or an argument, if it's intense, 
my initial response is to immediately go into a preaching mode. And I'm, I'm pre- I mean, I'm just, that is not a soft answer. Trust me, it is not a soft answer. But soft is not just limited to a particular decibel level. It is translated from a Hebrew word, rake, R-A-K, rake, and means tender and a tender, sensitive response. A sensitive, tender, sensitive response to disagreement is the same as gentleness and meekness because it is strength under control. The second phrase in this verse, a harsh word stirs up anger, um, the second phrase describes just the opposite response, and that is a harsh word. And in the original language, harsh means grievous and irritating and severe and exacting. And according to this phrase, this sort of response, if somebody pushes back hard, if their response is grievous and severe, then that just exacerbates the disagreement. It is said to stir up anger. And that form of anger is not acceptable. Third thing we can do if we are having a disagreement, we can respond in meekness. We can respond in meekness. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23 and 25 through 25. Notice verse 23. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. That is an amazing verse. If we all live by that verse, this world would be so much better off. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes meaning foolish and ignorant, stupid arguments about stuff that doesn't matter. And we all are guilty of that. Verse 24, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle. Some translate this word as kind, but be gentle or kind to all. Not just the people we like, all. Able to teach and patient. Verse 25, In humility... This word can also be translated as meekness. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. In humility, correcting those who are in disagreement with us. Jesus said that happiness is attributed to someone that is tender and sensitive, but doesn't necessarily surrender his position in the case of a disagreement. He can hold that position until heaven. But at the same time, he can be tender and sensitive to that other opposing perspective and person. I read about a little boy that came from an impoverished home and had little more than the bare necessities of life. But he was bright, he had an inquisitive mind, and so he enjoyed reading. He had the habit of going to a corner drug store, and this particular store had a section of current magazines. He would read the magazines. He would literally sit on the floor in front of the rack. He would pull out a magazine. He would read them, especially he enjoyed the comics. And he treated them very carefully. uh, So no one could complain that he had folded a, a page or he had torn a page. He was very careful. And he would read and he would read and put one back and and pull another one out and read. But one afternoon, he went one step past reading and he slipped a magazine inside his shirt 
before he left the store. Sometime after that, he returned to the store. And uh, because nothing had happened to him, this time he put two comics inside his shirt. And before long, he had established a regular pattern of stealing magazines. Eventually, the pharmacist at this drugstore caught him and he made him pull the stolen magazines out of his shirt. This boy was terrified. He was absolutely terrified because he didn't know what this man would do to him. He just assumed he would call the police and then tell his parents. But to his absolute surprise, the man proceeded to sit this adolescent down and he spoke to him about taking property that didn't belong to him. This was a non-violent offense. But this pharmacist realized that in time, if not interrupted, if not checked, this illegal practice could escalate into something more serious. So he was firm in his comments to the boy, but he didn't freak out on him. He didn't get loud and hammer him. No. He just shared with him the seriousness of this matter. And then after he finished his short and convincing lecture, he put his hand on the boy's shoulder and said, Son, please, please, don't do that again. That child became an adult. And as an adult, he confessed, I never did that again. I never stole a magazine. I've never stolen anything since that time. And I never forgot that man. He could have punished me to the fullest extent of the law, but he decided instead to be kind and just encourage me to do the right thing. That pharmacist didn't surrender and compromise his disagreement toward shoplifting. He maintained a, a stance, a posture against stealing. But in that case, knowing this child, he decided it would be better to be tender and compassionate toward this small shoplifter, and that made all the difference. Now, I need to add, that approach doesn't work in all cases. Contingent on the particular offender, contingent on the particular seriousness of the offense or the potential offense, it is sometimes more effective to be tough than tender. As per the aggressive technique Jesus used in cleansing the temple. Jesus cleansed the temple not once, twice. He overturned the merchants' tables. He dumped all their money on the ground. He made a whip and he drove out the livestock. He was angry. It was justifiable anger. It was a righteous anger. He was justified in doing what he did. He was tough. He wasn't tender in that situation. I'm convinced there are times we need to be tough. Um, Theodore Roosevelt said, speak softly but carry a big stick. A big stick helps someone, assist someone in being tough. I would suggest to our government, it's time to get a big stick. We let these petty tyrants in these other countries just run over us. I mean, China. China has stolen our technology for years. The head of the FBI just warned corporate heads about that recently. 
But China suffers no consequences. China sends a nefarious balloon across our airspace, but, but suffers no consequences. China originated a devastating virus called COVID and then lied about it, and China has suffered no consequences. China is one of the greatest nations of human violation and rights on earth. The Uyghur people who are Muslim people are being tortured. And Christians are being tortured. Christians are being arrested. Christians are being uh, tormented, tortured, and, and imprisoned and executed in China. In fact, I read an article just days ago that they're stepping up the persecution against Christians. They want the allegiance not to be to Christ, but to be to the president, Jing, uh, Xi Jinping. And what's happened? They don't suffer consequences. Why? Because our nation doesn't exercise a big stick. And we need to. Number four. If someone corrects us, then be teachable and not unreachable. If someone corrects us, then be teachable and not unreachable. Meekness means someone that has a teachable spirit. Meek people are anxious to learn. Meek people are anxious to make a correction. Meek people don't pretend to know it all. Proverbs 13, verse 18, Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains, meaning will come to him who refuses correction. But he who regards, meaning considers a rebuke, will be honored. I listen to every piece of criticism that comes to me. Some is justifiable, some is not justifiable. In some cases, the sources are very sincere, wanting the best for me, care for me. In other cases, they just want to blast me. I've had people come into my office to sit down and just scream at me. And, and just, I mean, just tear me apart. But I listen. I listen. Why? Because God used a donkey to speak to the prophet Balaam. And he could be using one again for me. If someone makes a constructive criticism about us, how do we relate to that critical comment? The normal reaction is to become defensive. That's not meekness. We're not going to learn from that. We need to listen carefully. We not, do not need to get uptight and defensive. Uh, don't just consider the source. Maybe you don't appreciate the source, but consider the suggestion because it still could be a message from God for you. The fact is we can learn more from criticism than from praise, much more. Sometimes our biggest critics help us out the most. Even though their motive might be to harm us, to hurt us, God can use that criticism to teach us something and cause us to change. That's the reason someone said, I'd rather change my mind and succeed than have my own way and fail. The famous humorist Will Rogers, we all, you know, he, he was phenomenal as a humorist. He said, I never met a man I didn't like. I added a twist to that statement. I never met a man I couldn't learn from. Because each of us are smart on different subjects, and we can learn from one another. 
every person in this room can teach me things I had no idea about. Every one of you. If we're teachable, that can happen. Might add a piece of trivia to give you an idea how skilled he was at humor. Mr. Rogers also said something else that is relevant to most of us since most of us have moved here from California. Mr. Rogers said, I moved from Oklahoma to California and raised the IQ in both states. <laughs> Think through that. That's, that's sad. Meekness means we're teachable, not unreachable. Someone that is unreachable is stubborn and doesn't listen to constructive criticism and doesn't learn. This is an example of unreachableness listed on a tombstone epitaph. Here lies the body of William J., who died maintaining his right of way. He was right, dead right, as he sped along, but he's just as dead as if he were wrong. <laughs> Number five. I might add, stubbornness can kill. I can cite the names, personal names, of people that would still be alive today if they hadn't been too stubborn to go see a doctor. It happens all the time. And do you want to guess which gender is most guilty of that? Men. Men are so stubborn. Except for me, I'm not that stubborn. Anyway, being teachable means not being too proud to learn and being correctable. Number five, if someone hurts us, be an actor, not a reactor. If someone hurts us, disappoints us, be an actor, not a reactor. Romans 12, verse 17 and 21. Notice, repay no one evil for evil, meaning retaliation is not part of God's vocabulary. Why? Because he'll take care of that. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. The fact is being hurt is inevitable. No one is immune to being hurt because hurt just happens. The meekness question is, if we have been hurt, then how do we respond to that person that hurt us? The normal response is to retaliate in anger against that person, but instead someone that demonstrates meekness acts in forgiveness, and that means he's an actor and not a reactor. Proverbs 16, verse 32, he who is slow to anger... He doesn't have a short fuse. He has a long fuse. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, meaning he who maintains self-control, is better than he who takes a city. The famous philosopher Aristotle described meekness as the mean or middle between excessive anger and the inability to manifest anger at all. He said meekness is the middle between excessive anger and the inability to manifest anger at all because some people can't and don't. This means someone that is meek is able to manifest anger at the right person for the right reason at the right moment 
and for the right length of time. And that's strength under control. People use this phrase. We've all said it. I'm sure everyone has said this. You make me so mad. We've all said that. Parents say that all the time. Of teenagers, all the time. But in telling someone he or she makes us mad, we are admitting that that person is at that moment in control of our emotions. We are acknowledging if that person makes me so mad that that person at that moment is in control of our emotions and not us. We're not in control and God's not in control of those emotions. But in that emotional estate, we are not acting in self-control. And we are close to reacting in retaliation. And that's unacceptable. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit, the person that doesn't manifest self-control, is like a city broken down without walls. This person Solomon has just described as out of control and needs to learn to contain himself. Essentially, he's a reactor. Let me close with this. Most people aren't aware. Um, I might add, most people know that I loved Abraham Lincoln. Um, His picture's in my office on the wall. Um, I had much respect for him. Um, Most people aren't aware that former President Lincoln started out his legal and political career as a hypercritical person. He was a hypercritical critical person. He often attacked and ridiculed his opponents in public letters that he had published in newspapers. But he did that just once too often. In the fall of 1842, he ridiculed a pugnacious politician named James Shields. Lincoln lampooned him through an anonymous letter he had published in the Springfield Journal. The town read that anonymous letter and roared with laughter. And Shields, who was sensitive and proud, after reading that, boiled with indignation, he investigated until he determined who it was that wrote that anonymous letter. Once he determined it was Lincoln, he jumped on his horse. He started out after Lincoln, and he met him, and he challenged him to fight a duel. Uh, Lincoln didn't want to fight. He was opposed to dueling, but he couldn't get out of it and save his honor. He felt like he had no choice. Lincoln was given the choice of weapons, and since he had extremely long arms, he chose Uh, Calvary broadswords, and actually took lessons in sword fighting from a West Point graduate in order to prepare for that duel. I might add, most people don't know, Lincoln had a very athletic and strong uh, body. He, um, He won over 300 wrestling matches. Most people don't know that. So we're not sure how this was going to be, but on the appointed day, He and his opponent, Shields, met uh, on a sandbar on the Mississippi River. Each of them with their sword prepared to fight to the death. But at the last minute, their seconds interrupted them and convinced them to stop the duel. 
That was considered the most lurid personal incident in Abraham Lincoln's life. But it taught him an invaluable lesson because he never again, never wrote an insulting letter. He never again ridiculed anyone. And from that time on, he almost never criticized anyone. If Mrs. Lincoln and others in his presence spoke harshly about the southern people in the Confederate States, Lincoln would respond, don't criticize them. They are just what we would be under similar circumstances. Time after time during the Civil War, Lincoln assigned a new general at the head of the army. And each one in turn, McKellen, Pope, Burnside, Hooker, Meade, all of them, all of those generals that he selected to head up the Union forces, all of them blundered tragically and drove Lincoln to pacing the floor in despair. Half the nation savagely condemned those incompetent generals. But Lincoln, with malice toward none and charity for all, held his peace. The Battle of Gettysburg was fought during the first three days of July, 1863. We're all familiar with that battle. It was said that during the night after that famous battle on July 4th, General Lee from the Confederate forces began to retreat southward as storm clouds deluged the region with rain, heavy rain. Once Lee reached the Potomac with his defeated army, he found there a swollen, impassable river in front of him. And he found the victorious and aggressive Union forces behind him. Lee found himself trapped. A river in front of him he couldn't cross. The Union forces behind him that had earlier defeated him. He couldn't escape. Lincoln was made aware of that. And this seemed to be a perfect heaven-sent opportunity to capture Lee's army and actually end the Civil War. So with a surge of high hope, Lincoln ordered Meade not to call a council of war, but to attack General Lee and his men at once. Lincoln telegraphed his orders and then sent a special messenger to Meade demanding his immediate action. Guess what General Meade did? He did the exact opposite of what he had been told to do. He called a council of war in direct violation of Lincoln's orders. That meant he hesitated. He procrastinated. He telegraphed to Lincoln all sorts of excuses. He refused point black blank to attack Lee. He, he refused. And ultimately, what happened? The waters of the Potomac receded. The rain stopped. And Lee and his men escaped over the Potomac to fight again. Lincoln heard that and he was furious. What does this mean? Lincoln cried to his son Robert, Great God, what does this mean? We had them within our grasp and had only to stretch forth our hands and they were ours. Nothing that I could say, yet nothing I could say or do could make that army move. Under the circumstances, almost any general could have defeated Lee. Lincoln said, if I'd gone up there, I could have whipped him myself. In bitter disappointment, Lincoln sat down and wrote General Meade this letter. And please remember, at this period of his life, 
Lincoln was extremely conservative. He, he was restrained in his phraseology, meaning that he was at this time manifesting meekness. So this letter from Lincoln in 1863 actually constituted at this time probably his most severe rebuke of anyone. This is that letter. My dear general, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within our easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, would have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. If you could not safely attack, attack Lee last Monday, how can you possibly do so south of the Potomac River when you can take with you very few, no more than two-thirds of the force you then had in hand? It would be unreasonable to expect, and I do not expect, that you can now effect much. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. That was the letter he penned to General Meade. What do you suppose Meade did after he read that letter? That's a good question. Because Meade never read that letter. And the reason he never read that letter was because Lincoln never mailed that letter. It was found among his papers after his death. The unanimous guess is that after writing that letter, Lincoln thought to himself, Wait, wait just a minute. I probably ought not to be so hasty. It's easy enough for me to sit here in the quiet of the White House and order General Meade to attack. But if I had been at Gettysburg, as he was, and had seen as much blood as Meade had seen during the past week, and if my ears had been pierced with the screams and shrieks of the wounded and dying, then I might not have been so anxious to attack either. If I send me this letter, it might relieve my feelings, but it's going to make me attempt to justify himself. It will make him condemn me. It will arouse hard feelings. It will impair all his further usefulness as a commander and perhaps force him to resign from the army. President Lincoln as the then commander-in-chief of this nation's armies, had, he had, in and of himself, the executive strength to have Meade arrested and initiate court-martial proceedings against him. And probably most men would have done that. He had that ability and prerogative. It was available to him. But he refrained from doing that. Why? So he could retain a valuable and productive high-ranking member of his armed forces. That was acting and not reacting. And that is meekness. Because meekness is strength under control. I might add that apparently God blessed Lincoln's attitude. Because remember who won the war. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, um, pretty sure this uh, message affects all of us.
none of us maintain our strength under control at all times as a meek person would. I admit that. I'm guilty of that. Probably I'm guilty of that more than others. But God, uh, I just pray we will we'll stop and think next time uh, when we are in a dispute or disagreement or conflict and help us to be as your son Jesus was to be meek and gentle, not to cave in to a position that we know is wrong, to hold on to our position, to maintain our position, to not compromise, but, but to be meek and gentle toward the person that we have a problem with. I just pray, God, you'll bless this message. I pray you'll use it to make a difference in our hearts and in our lives this week. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.